guys, welcome to another Sunday night episode of the Brand Love Podcast. Tonight I'm playing for you part two of Men's Mental Health Panel, part two of the Men's Mental Health Panel, which was held in July, our in-person Brain Love event. I think you will find this very enlightening. Uh, there was a lot of uh, questions answered, a lot of dialogue, a lot of exchange. And so I hope you will join us on the couch tonight. It begins with an introduction from me as well as an introduction to the panelists. Thank you to all of you for being here tonight because it says a lot about your interest in your life for your wellness, that you care about your brains, you care about your life, you care about your livelihood. And so I started doing this. This is the second one. Shout out to the folks who were here last month. Thank you for coming back. Thank you to the new folks who are here tonight. We're doing this because we have to have an open platform to be able to engage and share ideas and share concepts so that way we can get out ahead of issues and challenges. We can do something that's preventative that'll help us, you know, try to avoid things like extra added stress, avoid the extra anxieties and the nervousness, learn how to deal with mental health challenges, learn how to create a healthy circle, because a lot of people don't have a healthy circle, because some of y'all are toxic and should be cut off from some of these people's circles. So if you're one of those people that's always having an issue with someone, I need you to check yourself. Because oftentimes when there's a problem, we should be asking ourselves first, how did I contribute to that problem? But before we jump into the panel discussion, because we're going to get right into it, I told you guys there would not be a show show tonight because we have a lot of things to work out with our panelists. I'm so glad that the six gentlemen came back. Give it up for them. Thanks for coming back, guys. Yes, I see where their hearts lie. And also, we have two new panelists we added. But before we do that, I just have a couple of things to brief you on. I think that is probably one of the driving forces behind what we wanted to do with this. Right. Um, as men, the first model that you have for your manhood is your father. Right. And what do you do when you don't have that model that you can mirror? Right. Where do you get information about what it is to be a black or a brown man and how to properly matriculate into manhood mm -hmm. and all the the keys that are necessary to you know to unlock brotherhood, fatherhood, uh, uh, husbandhood, and of course manhood. Right, right. I lost my father when I was a teenager. My father died in a car accident. Unfortunately, I was the last person to see him. He had he, you know he had dropped me off. Um, he had dropped us off at school on his way to work, ends up in an 11-car pileup, unfortunately passes away. Um, so I wrestled for years with even the concept of death, manhood, um, emotion. Um, it was all things that I had to, um, you know, I felt like I had to subdue because I thought manhood meant no emotion. I, you know, that was, I, w I remember being told very clearly, and it was all done in good faith and, out of, you know, out of the kindness of everyone's heart. But when my father passed, everybody telling me, you know, you're the man of the house, take care of your mother, take care of your brother. I'm not understanding what that assignment meant at that time. All I could do was go off of the information I had gotten up to that point. It really, I think, stunted my growth as a man. 
Again, the stories that we created in our heads about how we're supposed to be challenged them so we could come up with a new definition of who we really are. That's where our society goes wrong because our society wants to downplay or dismiss the stress of a man or minimize the stress of a woman. We all have stress. We just have different stresses. If we had the space to communicate, to flesh out what it is, if we had OGs, because there's a lot of men out here that don't have men or, or dads in their lives. So as we're having this conversation up here, it's our responsibility to kind of create these spaces for the young men to kind of get the idea of what a man is to them. All right, so I just wanted to reorient you guys, uh, especially the folks who weren't here last month which is why I played that last video. How many of you think a woman can raise a man? And, and let me, I'll say it this way. How many of you think a woman can raise a man completely? Completely. Dr. Smart has his hand up. Is that Dr. Smart? Okay, thanks for being here, Dr. Smart. Sean Smart is a neurologist, y'all. So we have some medical doctors here and some mental health professionals too. And some veterans, you know, I have to give shout outs, but I'm not going to waste time doing that because we got to move on with this panel discussion. So we are doing this for a couple of reasons. Six million men are affected by depression and probably three quarters of them do not seek treatment. They don't get treated. They just live with that depression because there's a stigma and they, there's something with the ego where they don't want to admit that they're hurting or they're sad. And also we instill in our men that they can't be sad, that they always have to be happy or content. They always have to be Teflon. So we want to get rid of that, that, uh, that misinformation. We want to remove that from the universe and allow our men to have emotions and to feel of men, so basically 10%, have anxiety and or depression. One in four men are not, I'm sorry, three in four men are not getting the mental health treatment they need. Only one in four men, 25%, will go and seek treatment. So this is a discussion so we can educate and encourage so folks change the scenario. Men of color, one in five people experience mental illness in a year, but men of color are at greater risk. And this event is a paid event because we use the funding to help our Brain Love Foundation. We have a foundation called DRT Brain Love, and this is how we help people access mental health care. So these are folks who have very limited finances. This could be someone who has health insurance, but they have a $100,000 deductible. Like, if you could see some of these policies, they're ridiculous. All right. Y'all ready for the show? Okie dokie. So... Let's start first. Last time, I did not read the full bios of our panelists, but I am doing that tonight so you know who's on this stage, and we're starting with, please stand up, Prez. 
Give it up for President Gordon Eric Knowles. He's the current president and CEO of the Miami-Dade Chamber of Commerce, and he's our moderator tonight. He has served in several capacities within the Miami Dolphins organization for 15 years. I was before his job now with the chamber. He served on several nonprofit boards in South Florida. Currently, board member and past chairman of the Thelma Gibson Health Initiative, board member of Miami-Dade Beacon Council, board member of the Greater Miami Convention and Visitors Bureau, board member of the Business Assistance Center, a member of 100 Black Men of South Florida, and 5,000 Role Models of Excellence program. So he gives of his time. You feel so happy when you volunteer and you give of your time when you help other people. It really does you good. His interests include writing, golf, landscaping, and acting. He's also a certified yoga coach and yoga instructor, pardon me, and has two beautiful daughters, Erica and Catherine. And he was a member of the 82nd Airborne Division. Any army in the building? (laughs) Okay. All right. Next up. He came all the way from Atlanta. Dane Reed, where are you, sir? Please make your way to the stage. As I find your bio. So he's from Brooklyn, New York. He is... Oh, no. (laughs) No, no. He is a voice actor and author based in Atlanta. His voiceover work spans two decades. He quit his job teaching, man, to do voiceover. And he has a book that some of you received when you came in, Forget Having Kids, I'm Having Fun. (laughs) I see. Hold up. If you have a book, hold it up. The book is hilarious. You will enjoy it. Oh, yes. He will sign your book. All right, so he is child-free. He brought his lady here. Where are you at, lady? <laughs> Don't be shy. All righty, so Dane, when he is not on, uh, when he's not acting or doing his voice acting, he travels the globe, and he's writing books. This is not his first book. You guys can visit him on his website, which is Dane Reed Medium. I'm sorry, Medium, media.com. Pardon me. Next up, Coach Philip Wells. Where are you at, Philip Wells? <laughs> Coach Wells specializes in helping entrepreneurs and working professionals build their confidence so that they can have massive success and happiness. Coach Wells is a therapist and high performance coach that focuses on helping people like you help you to crush your self doubt so that you can have a fulfilling career, business, and the life that you want. Thank you for being here again, Coach. The next mental health professional is Herman McLean. Where are you? Soon to be Dr. McLean. Come on up, Herman. He's a licensed mental health counselor and currently a doctoral student in the Doctor of Marriage and Family Program at Nova Southeastern University. He's a highly skilled licensed mental health clinician who takes insurance, by the way, and he sees kids and teenagers. We don't have a lot of that in our community, so you got to take note of that. He's a 2013 graduate from St. Thomas University. And let's see, Herman's interaction with various relational systems has led him to pursue his Doctor of Marriage and Family Therapy. He has maintained success as a therapist in a number of settings. Thanks for being here again, Herman. We appreciate you. Next up, where is Dexter Bridgman, CEO? 
and publisher of the MIA Media Group. He too is very active in our community. <laughs> he is a member of the Black Owned Media Alliance, a member of the Miami Dade Chamber of Commerce, a member of the Greater Miami Conventions and Visitors Bureau a Broward County Black Chamber of Commerce member, a member of the Palm Beach Black Chamber of Commerce, and is the producer of six shows that are now on television in South Florida under the MIA Media Group. And Black Health is here tonight. Is Dr. Curran in the room? Hey, Dr. Curran. She's a pediatrician in North Miami taking care of our babies. Clap it up for Dr. Curran. We don't have enough black physicians in the community. All right, I got to make my way to another screen to bring up. So Dexter is new to the panel. Um, our other new panel member is Dr. Alex Lanou. Uh, Dr. Lanou, where are you, sir? Perfect. He has been in practice in Hollywood in Cooper City, Florida for the last 20 years as a gastroenterologist. He is my gastroenterologist. He helps to control my GERD. And he works at Gastro Health and is affiliated with Memorial Healthcare System. He received his BA degree in chemistry from the University of South Florida in 1993 with honors. He received his medical doctor degree from the University of Miami in 1997 with honors. He completed his residency in internal medicine at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He's very smart. And he then completed his fellowship, which is another three years to do gastro. From 2000 to 2003 at Jackson Memorial, I guess he started to miss South Florida and came back to us. And we have two more panelists coming up. The next panelist is the Broward State Attorney. How about that? Thank you for spending your evening with us. We know you are busy out there in these streets helping. We know you're over busy, and we appreciate the time you're giving us, Harold Pryor. I am pulling up your bio right now. Where'd it go? Let's see. Got it. Harold F. Pryor was elected Broward State Attorney for Florida's 17th Judicial Circuit in November 2020. He leads a staff of 500 employees. Wow, that's it including 213 prosecutors whose mission is to make a community safer while working to ensure justice, equity, and fairness for everyone affected by our criminal justice system. He is the first black state attorney in Broward and the first black man to be elected state attorney in Florida. Clap it up for him, please. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? You think you got a list, uh, a group of bachelors here, but ladies, he's taken, he's married. We do have some folks who are single on the stage, just a couple. So he is married, and they have two young children. He is a graduate of the University of Florida for his Bachelor of Arts. And let's see, where are you? And he graduated from Nova Southeastern University's College of Law. Thank you for being here, Attorney Esquire. And we have our last panelist coming up. Mr. Gene Titus, come on on the stage. I swear I marked all of these bios. I need to hire a producer or something.
So Jean Titus was a real estate investor and worked on the stock market turned now entrepreneur and owner of Titus Unlimited. He was here with us last month. He has half a million, um, I mean, that's it, only half a million followers on social media, people he helps with advice on preventative health care, which is how he and I met on social media, because I really did dig how you teach people about preventative health, about our diets, about exercise, about not just relying on a pill. So Titus Unlimited is his company. He is the founder and the CEO. All right, guys, you ready for me to get out your hair? Let's get ready to rumble. Just kidding. Let's give it up for Dr. Delvina for bringing us all here together. So we've got a few rules um, that she told me I had to share. Yes, please. Because uh, <laughs> we're going to get through these questions. <laughs> please remember to keep your answers short, brief, and impactful. We will have to re- redirect you if you are being a little too winded. Uh, let me see what else we got. So we're going to just we're going to go from there, and it's great to be back up here again. Everybody good? Yeah, yeah totally right, Cool. So there's a sentiment seems to be shared that strong black men can be intimidating and could remind men of the father that. They did that didn't let them show emotion. Is this true or not true? And this is an open question. I'm not t- throwing it at anyone in particular. And, and I'm going to go to Titus first because he, he actually, in the last uh, session that we had, he probably had a different perspective than, than all of us. And the fact um, he actually was raised in Africa and Liberia. And had a very, very strong father in his life. So, Titus, that's thrown at you. Uh, well, uh, thank you for throwing that at me. Um, strong men can be viewed as, as intimidating. Um, let's first take a look at what a man is supposed to be. Okay? And I will back up first by saying this. I had a very strong father, but I had an extremely strong mother as well, okay? But what I do know as a child that came up in a country that saw full-blown war at the age of 13, (laughs) hard times make strong men. Strong men make easy times. Easy times make weak men, and weak men make hard times. When you're in the midst of war and you need someone to protect you, you better hope your dad is intimidating enough so that the people who want to do harm to you can see that this is not the place that that's going to happen. And so it's not that a problem that strong men are intimidating is a problem of the explanation of why they need to be that person that people revere, that person that sets a standard, that line that is drawn in the sand that you do not cross, that word when he says, hey, stop, he only has to say it once. And so it's a lack of understanding of the role of a father 
that is the problem and not necessarily that he is intimidating because his intimidation is necessary. To the point. Gentlemen, I'm asking the same question to all of you. Again, I'll repeat it. Strong black men can be intimidating and could remind men of the father that didn't let them show emotion. Yeah, um, I think to Titus's point, he was talking about the functionality of it. You know, like what purpose does my intimidation serve? You know, um, for you, you were mentioning it from the point of, hey, I need to raise my son to be disciplined, to have structure, to have, you know, a, a, almost like a character, right? So that I can trust when he goes out in the world, he won't be bended by what other people who didn't have a father may say or do. So I think that's what he was getting, getting at. You know, um, I'm all about showing emotions. I feel like emotions, they hold a lot of information that if you were to disregard, you would actually miss out on the important stuff that it's trying to tell you. You know, um, I'll, I'll just say this real quick, just to keep my answer short. To show you proof that emotions have value, think about in the 1950s where black people were extremely outraged by, you know, um, segregation, oppression, and things like that, right? That anger showed them that there was something wrong and something needed to change. If they didn't have that emotion, they would have been just good with the status quo. So don't treat emotions as if they're enemies. They're really informants, and you have to be able to listen to them and see what they're saying. So um, that's how I feel about it. Um, to your point, functionality is the big part of the intimidating role, but you can also show emotions as well and be intimidated. They can coexist. Please. Just, just, a, just a caveat off of that. Um, when, I, when I think of the question, I perceive it as uh, intimidation being like one speed. Right. And being intimidating is OK for some from, for some spaces and for some people in some situations. But as a man, you got to be able to temper that. Right. You don't have to be as intimidating as you are when you are like uh, if you have to defend your family. Right. It's not it's not the same. It's just only it's, a, it's only one speed. But I guess the, 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 the insight of the question is. The intimidation depletes the, the ability in the space to process other emotions other than just intimidation. So in therapy, we understand that anger is a secondary emotion. You could perceive that as intimidation as a secondary emotion to inspire defense mechanisms to protect. But that's only one speed. Like we're, we're intimidating sometimes. You know, to be a leader, you have to be sometimes intimidating. Sometimes you got to be domineering. Sometimes you got to flex sometimes. But that's only one speed. You can, you can choose to be that way in a different way, but also embrace the whole spectrum of emotions. And I think that's where we, we, we fall off because we feel like we have to be a certain way to protect and to display masculinity. But that's not the only way. There's, if you look on the speedometer of a car, there's, there's multiple speeds. You go from zero to 120, sometimes 240. But that doesn't mean that you have to live that way with the rush of emotions to be this perceived perception of what macho is or what a man is because that's what we hear. We, we're here to dissect the whole concept of what masculinity is and, and bring it to the forefront. Can, and I want to point to that. I think great points by everyone here. I think we do or, or we deal with situations as men or various men deal with situations 
uh, given the environments that they're put in or the situations that they're in, right? We adapt, right? Titus, your example is great, right? Because there was a time of war, right? And your father had to comport himself, be a certain way, because it was a matter of life or death, right? Um, I think your point, my brother, um, is important because there are different ways, right? When I look at my father and I look at how he interacted with me, four boys in my household, and we grew up in our own classified war zone, right? Drugs was rampant. Um, violence. I, I lost six or seven friends to gun violence from the age of 13 all the way to when I was a lawyer, age 26. And my brothers and I, we spent a Christmas back home, right? All of us have boys, by the way. And I, my daughter's the eighth grandchild. She's the only girl of the seven grandchildren. So we're sitting there, and we see my dad, how he's interacting with all the little boys in the house. He's giving them hugs. He's giving them kisses. He's saying, I love you. He's, you know, putting them on the lap. And that wasn't the man that we grew up with, right? Because that goes back to the question. goes back to the question, right? And so we... You know, we're watching football, all the kids are asleep, the women are going, doing whatever they're doing, and we're sitting now, and, we, and I, you know, I'm the asshole of the family. I was like, Pops, man, like, you were like that when we were kids. And he said something that was profound, and I, I think it drives home to that point, Titus. He said, I didn't, I, I didn't have the resources that you guys have, but I only knew what I could do in that particular moment. I knew how I had to raise you guys in that war zone. Your friends were dying left and right. Your homeboys was in and out of the juvenile justice system. Your friend, your best friend who you played football with, was charged as an adult for murdering someone. And he said, I couldn't be Bill Cosby, Dr. Huskable. And maybe it may have been wrong. I don't know. But he felt that was the best way that he could father, right? He had to be that disciplinarian. He had to be that intimidating force in our household where he said, hey, you go going to bed by 9 o'clock. If you're not in bed, you have to deal with me. You need to do your homework. You need to make A's, right? Those are the type of things that we had to deal with, and I think he adapted to the environment that we're in, the situation that we're in. But to go to your point, there's different situations. I'm not going to father the same way that my father fathered, right? I may have that intimidation factor there, but I have more tools and resources at my disposal to deal with my children on a different level because... We're here. We're here to converse as men and to get that information so we can be better men and understand that there are different ways that we can father and be men. And you don't have to be intimidating 24-7. I think, it's, I think there's a balance there. You, you know, I have a question for you. Do you think that um, what your father did and, and how he raised you was necessary? And, um, and I'm sure Titus might be thinking this as well. You know, do you think that in using other tools, but aside from that intimidation um, and that, that kind of fortitude, are you preparing your kids for another possible war, right? So we, you know, we're in the longest stretch of peace here in the United States, et cetera. Um, and I think a lot of times we don't think about the fact that there can and will be war. And the question is, and, and I mean war in so many different kinds of ways, right? We are in a war. Oh, we get it. Oh, we're in Right. It. Yeah, that's right. why we're here, but, because we're trying to get ourselves together uh, to deal with this war that we're in. Absolutely. But, you know, um, you know, going closer to the kind of war that Titus was speaking about, right, are we preparing young people for that kind of 
of war, that kind of conflict, for that kind of fortitude for very difficult situations? Because, Or are we preparing them to be uh, weaker, in which case we're creating hard times? My, my children get both sides of it, right? I feel it's just I feel now it's incumbent upon me carrying on the prior name. There's been six generations of prior men here in the state of Florida alone. And I feel that I have that. I have to carry that legacy as well. And they have to see that, right? But also, I have more resources. I have a little bit more money than my father did, than my grandfather did. And so I have a lot more information, right? So I can add on what I've learned, the example that I've had from my father, and add upon that, right? There's certain things. You know, my dad was all spice, no sugar, right? 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 Me, I'm adding some, you know. I'm hugging my children. I'm giving them a hug. I'm, I'm kissing my boys. I'm kissing my daughter, right? I'm, I'm showing the affection that I didn't get as a child, but I still have that assertiveness where they know that I'm the man of the house. We run, I run my household. But I think there's a balance. I think there's a balance with everything. Absolutely. Right. But Titus, go ahead. Jump in there. Um, I think sometimes people might misunderstand what I'm saying. <laughs> let, me, let me get this straight. I'll make this straight to you guys. I grew up as a wealthy child. My father was physician to the president of Liberia, so there was no reason why I had to be raised tough. The reason why I was raised tough is because my mother and father understood that there could be a time where they would not be around to give me all the comforts. And lo and behold, when 1990 came and that war broke out, I was used to working in the yard with the servants. I was used to cutting grass and brushing fields. I was used to handling M16. So guess what? When that time came for that to happen, that wasn't the time to be teaching. That was the time where all the teaching kicked in. Okay? And so as fathers, as men with children, when we institute discipline, a certain amount of rigidity with our children, it's not because of what's happening now. It's about what could happen later. My mother used to serve me oatmeal every Saturday, and I hated oatmeal. And she could have given me anything else. And you know what she said to me? She said, what if I die and somebody is kind enough to take you in and all they can afford is oatmeal? You're going to eat it, and you're going to like it. So I'm going to be the first one to give it to you, and you don't get up until you eat it. Period. And, that, and, and to be truthful, right, my mother was the battle axe, okay? But I got it from both sides, and when one side gave me the battle, the battle axe, the other side says, you know, your father loves you, and that is why. You know, your mother loves you, and that is why, okay? So, so you know, we're, what we're talking about, and something you just brought up, Titus, and my friends know I have a godson, and, uh, and I said this the last time and took him out. I'm a gardener, took him out to work in the yard with me. And he didn't know what a rake was. And he didn't know what a hoe was. <laughs> and so, as you said, you worked in the garden. You learned how to mow. But that helped you become the man that you became. Because those things don't just happen haphazardly. And, you know, the one thing I talk about, and I used to fight with my sister 
and, and my cousin who raised boys and did they didn't make them wash dishes they didn't make them clean up they didn't make them those are the things that boys and girls need to learn that's a discipline and we have to in order to matriculate through life you have to have discipline because otherwise that's where you go out here and lose and do those things that you should not be doing or when things come in your face you don't know how to handle them go ahead Titus you look like Esquire, you can probably attest to this right 75 percent of our prison population is there because they got emotional they made an emotional decision emotions are great but emotions as a man can be dangerous so it's great that we all have emotions and we should recognize that we have them but never as a man is it ever acceptable to make decisions or allow your emotions to run how you conduct yourself and i'm sure a lot of you've seen the instagram where was it um what's the black judge the little short one with a little short haircut and she talks about men who are in prison because of an emotional, well, he was in my face. I shot somebody because he was in my face, and I'm a man. That's, yeah, you dissed me. I felt offended. And, you know, that's, that's not being a man. And, you know, the question, one question we talked about the last time, and I know Doc is over there, and he raised his hand, and the question was, can a woman raise a, I said man to be a man, but could a woman raise a boy to be a man? And I admittedly, and I, and I strong hardly say no. But he says yes, and I'd actually like to, for him to speak on that. Come on up here. <laughs> This is an open conversation. Anybody else would like to chime in? So, um, first, my name is Sean Smart. I'm a neurologist, but I'm we speaking... We have another chair up here if you want to sit down. <laughs> no, I'll stand. No, I'm actually speaking from experience. Um, so, I'm raised by my mother. The, the, I mean, eventually she remarried. I spent some time with my dad. But at the end of the day... When you say you need a man to raise a man, it's because you're trying to get somebody to fit into what is a social construct or what is a predefined or what a man is. My notion is there is no preconstruction. What my mom raised me to do was to be open-minded and be anything I wanted to be by seeing the world through the eyes of whatever eyes I want to be. So like my entire life I was called arrogant because I grew up, I was born in Jamaica in the rural country where we carried water every day. We had outhouses and I wanted to be a doctor. I came here, everybody told me that's not what you're supposed to do. My mom was a teenager when she had me, and she raised me. So when people talk about can a woman raise a man, and we have all boys, she has no girls. And yes, she remarried with my stepdad, but my mom is the one that taught every one of us. My mom built her business from the ground up, came here with nothing, with a, two kids, we were homeless at times. right? But what she told us to be was whatever we wanted to be. So when, when, when I think about this, and I, I look back, even in Jamaica, I look at other countries, when you, when you look at the world, we, we lost our history. Because if you look, at, look back in, in Liberia, Africa, Jamaica, the women have always raised the kids. The men were out working or f- going to war. Who was there? 
the women were there. The thing is, we have a predefined, like, if we just let, my take on it is this. When I, when I talk to my brothers, I tell them this. I do not tell them to be like me. I do not tell them to be like anything. What I tell them to do is to be strong in who they want to be, and I will help. And that's what my mom did. And even the time I spent with my dad, my dad didn't tell me what to do. When I, when I wanted to learn calculus, um, I was struggling in school. My dad is brilliant beyond the words. My dad handed me the book and said, if you want something, figure it out. And, and, and he was like, that's how, him, that's how he did things. That's how my mom did things. And that way, it was just, so that's why I say it. I, I have the utmost love for my mom, and she did it. And she did it with four boys. And only one of them is kind of, he's, but he's still not in jail, but he's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Titus. I, I, res, I respect your response. What's his last name, so I can... I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> Our last name is Smart, but you'll never see him. He's too smart for that. <laughs> but he's there. I, I can definitely respect what you have to say. Um, and yes, a woman can raise a man to live in easy times. But let's assume that war, when you said... The women are raising the kids. The men are out there working and fighting. And what happens if they stop working and fighting? You think you'll be able to do what you want to do? I remember when somebody, somebody said this to me one time. Uh, look at the male lion. He doesn't do anything but sit on top of the hill and sleep and roar every now and then. I said, well, the reason why he sits on top of the hill, first of all, is to get a better vantage of anyone coming. He roars every now and then to let other lions know that he's there. And every day he sits on top of that hill, he prepares for the day that another lion is going to come and he has to fight that lion to the death. Because if he doesn't, after that lion kills him, that lion will go down the hill and kill every single one of his cubs. And guess what that woman, what the female lion will have to do? She will will mate with him and give him new cubs. So, once again, raising children in easy times sounds great. But what happens when they run into that snag? What happens when they have to figure it out? What happens when they become a full-grown man, right? And no one wants to hear their excuse. In our society, when they literally are sitting there by themselves and they're wondering, why don't I get the help? Because that's not how it's designed. Can I just add one thing? One more thing. One more thing. Let me just add that. So with actually lions, it's actually the female that does most of the protection. The female actually does most of the raising. No, I mean, I'm I'm big into lions. The female lion is the dominant one and actually the most ferocious of all the lions when it comes to. And and, and in terms of hard times, I'm just going to end this. And maybe I'll take a chair. Um, But but in terms terms of. Okay, let me me, me get get us back on track over here. Double the size. And a female lion stands no chance against a male lion. Okay. Doc. Yes, it is. You know, the problem with parenting is I always say that the human being is the only animal born totally ignorant. (laughs) Hold up, hold up. Okay, go ahead, Doc. I said the human being is the only animal born totally ignorant and delivered to two people who sometimes are even more ignorant to prepare him for an uncertain future. 
if you knew the struggle, if you knew what battles your children were going to face in the future, you would have known the tools to give them to fight that battle. But all of life is war. We're talking about war as a physical war where strength is needed. However, physical strength, if physical strength was all that mattered, then probably the elephant would have been the king of the jungle. The idea is that there is no life without struggle. Life is struggle. And there is no one here who's not battling something. Only the dead will have seen the end of war. The idea of being strong, being strong is, about, is able to take a blow and stand up afterwards. That could be a physical blow. But most of us are done fighting physical fights. But the battle persists. The battle is at work. The battle is in your family. The battle is with your uh, people who envy what you have. Or that sometimes, actually, the battle, most of the time, is within yourself. You're battling yourself. So I will say that a good parent tried to make their children as well-rounded as possible. And that includes a few parameters. Uh, you want to be respected, earn it. You can't beat someone to make them respect you. They will fear you, but they don't respect you. To earn a one, another person's respect, you're going to have to come from a place of dignity, integrity, self-reliance, resilience, uh, wisdom, and ultimately, this is a game of survival. All of us here are intimidating. The reason that it is, everybody here is intimidating. Those who are not already dead, they're gone. We're born into a war zone. They make our lives tough from the beginning. Well, Doc, the one thing I want to talk about, to your point in the war zone, we as black men, black men are in a war zone every day trying to matriculate, as I said, through life. And we even have the war zone of having to deal with ourselves and one another. Let's talk about that. Yes. That's the biggest battle we fight. Yes. Let's talk once about can, how... Once, you conquer, how yourself, once yeah. you conquer yourself, that's it. Ourselves, but again, being black men in our communities, trying to build our communities, but we have others who look like us who tear us down. Let's talk about that. And that whole mindset of being, again, a black man trying to make our world better. We have to be here for each other. We have to love each other. We have to hug each other and say, look, I'm here for you. That's it. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that all men make is we have this lone wolf attitude, okay? Most men don't have at least two, three, four good men around them that can pull them up, that can tell them, hey, you're wrong. Yeah. That, can, that they can come to and say, hey, man, you know, something bothering me. Let, me. let me ask you something. What, what do you think about this? All right? Someone that they can actually talk to about a problem before it becomes a catastrophe, like people break down. You should not get to the point of breaking down. You should have someone to talk to first. You should have somebody to pull you up, somebody who 
has either a different perspective or has seen more in life, okay? Our society disconnects young men from old men. But young men, how are they supposed to prepare for life? My dad told me this. My dad says, don't, don't misunderstand to think that I'm just that much smarter than you. He says, I've just seen the movie more times, okay? And he said, I can tell you where the holes are, right? And then I can tell you, even if you step in a hole, how to deal with that, all right? And that is the problem. We don't talk to each other. And we wait until a problem gets overblown before then that is, that, that's how we deal. Jump in there. I just want to chime in. I think, I, I really think that's, that's our responsibilities as OGs to create that space and to, to bridge that gap with the younger generation. Because, and I say this, I got a bunch of clients, a bunch of young men, and their reference point to masculinity or a man is social media. Social media. And you wouldn't believe this, like, one of the leading causes of, of black men death is, is suicide, yeah? And I'm going to say this, we kill each other over women based on ego. And that's just what it is. And we look to social media to be our reference point to say, this is how we're supposed to act. But like I said, I think it's our responsibilities as OGs to create the opportunity and the space for the young Gs to come up and say, you know, make sense of it. How, how am I supposed to, but, what, what am I, how, where do I start? I'm going to give you an interesting um, experience. And Dex wanted to jump in. I know Doc wanted to jump in. I helped the brother. He was trying to meet. I run the chamber. I run the Miami-Dade chamber, the black chamber. Been around for 50 years. And this brother wanted to meet somebody. And the conversation before that was, you know, you OGs, y'all need to get out of the way. Because, you know, y'all blocking the way and we trying to come up. And so if y'all don't get out of the way, we're going to come and take the keys. But then, a month later, however, I need to meet that person over there because I need to. <laughs> I made the introduction. He walked out with a check for $50,000. But he wanted to take the keys. So that's that conversation also that we need to have in that we live in this microwave age that you think everything is instant. There's a process. You want to be the manager before you learn how to mop the damn floor. You can't manage anybody until you know how to do the job yourself. You got to mop the floor. You got to sweep the floor. You got to know where to even find the mop. And that's what they don't want to do. They want to tell somebody to go mop the floor. So along your story, so when I was in medical school, um, Make it short, Doc. Real quick. I was in med school. One of the older physicians told me my issue was I didn't smile enough and I was intimidating. A black guy came, pulled me aside, and he was trying to give me advice. I got angry at him. I was like, you're telling me as a black man that I need to smile more to appease them. No. But now I'm a professor in a university where I stay there because I, I have to help other black men know how to play the game. So now you understand. And now I understand the game. But that's why, like, I do things where, you know, all of us, where you bring all the black men to, to, together, like I bring all residents 
physicians of all ages to my home where they meet. Because, you know, you have that attitude because initially we, we're upset. When we're younger, we're, we're mad at, we think we, we think we know. But I'll tell you right now, the same thing I tell my residents and the med students. There's a lot you don't know, and this is why you need guidance. Dex? So this is interesting because I was thinking about this last time that we had this panel. I was looking at the young men in the audience, and I saw some of them kind of just like this, and they little, you know, kind of just, they started zoning out a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? And as we were having this conversation amongst ourselves, it sparked the idea of how do we take what we know and what we think, our experiences, and translate that to them? So how do we speak their language, right? Because we're all here on this panel, and we're, we know what we're talking about. We've been, you know, we've hit the potholes and things like that, right? But for people who have never looked that far ahead, who have never seen the potholes, who are on social media, regardless of whether or not we like what these young people are doing, and how they do it, the fact is that they're still doing it, right? And they're going to continue. And they're going to continue. Like, I've always hated seeing young men walking around with their pants sagging, for instance. I can, I can beat them in the head talking about stop sagging your pants, but they're still sagging their pants. What is it that we need to say that translates to them? What is that Rosetta Stone that gets them... Think that gets us all speaking the same language. Hold on. I'm going to be very brief. So two of my very best friends in the world are in this room tonight. That's Bill Diggs and Eric Knowles. And um, many times when we're in conversation, it could be, we could be the three of us on a, on a group call or I'm talking to Eric, I'm talking to Bill. And even before or after the conversation or during, Bill, I love you, man. Dex, I love you. Eric, I love you, man. You know, it's not enough of that. And I, Titus, I'd be interested in hearing what your reaction to this is because I know, you know, just based upon some of the things you're saying, it's about, you know, men and black men having masculinity and, and being, you know, that Superman type of image. But there's nothing wrong with men saying, I love you. There's nothing wrong. And to me, that's a sign of power. And that's the sign, you know what I'm saying? You know, there's nothing wrong with if a man sheds a tear. It's no, it's not about being feminine uh, or being, you know, I mean, being anything other than being a man. That's who we are. Well, Dexter, I'll, I'll tell you, and just to pick, it'll be quick because it, this is a real thing for me. So it didn't come to me later on in life. It came out of necessity. When I lost three friends in a row consecutively in the summer, I was in fear I might be next. And so out of necessity, me and my homeboys and my teammates, we would always say, bro, I love you. And I mean, we were doing this at 14, 15 because it was a real thing. We went to the funeral and we're like, man, it could be one of us. And it was a real thing. It was out of necessity. I do it till this day, you know, and I didn't care who saw it. I didn't I didn't care who what anybody had to say about it. Because I lived it, you know, I lived it in that moment that I might not see my friends ever again. And we have to create that space as men, and they need to see us show that love to one another. Because I deal with a criminal justice system less than a mile away from here, 
And when you go in that box and you see those men with shackles on, 99.9% of them are black men. And 99.9% of them in that situation, I won't even say 99.9%, I'll say 85 to 90%, right? Because you watch TV, and I hate to tell you this, and y'all won't, I know y'all will hate me, kill the messenger, but the 10 or 5% of those cases, yes, police misconduct, they got them, right? They, they're wrong. That's why I'm here to fix that. But unfortunately, in my reality, what I see in this neighborhood, I'm charged with keeping each and every one of you safe. 80 to 90% of those young brothers are in that situation because they don't know how to deal with those situations because they're acting out of emotion, right? Because they don't know how to act or interact with another man in their community because they haven't seen it from us, right? You disrespected me. You looked at me the wrong way. Hey, you was looking at, you DM my girl because it all starts on, on social media, right? And now someone's acting emotional and they act on that emotion. So I, I wanted to piggyback on that. So this a little, uh, little, little clarification <laughs> once again. <laughs> All the butt whoopings I got in my life were given to me by my mother, not my dad. Okay. As a matter of fact, when I was young, my dad told my mother, I get more respect from him because I make him think. When I did something wrong, I could do anything wrong I wanted because my dad also understood I was a highly intelligent kid. But all I had to do explain to him is what I was thinking and how did I think this was going to work out. What that made me do is to not think from emotion but think from logic. How is this going to play out? What is the end result of this action? And yes, my dad told me he loved me all the time. I used to be all under my dad. My mom sometimes was like, why you let that boy be under you like so much? He said, leave the boy alone. He's fine. Okay, and so there is that balance. However, I was bred and raised for war. Okay, going back to my questions, what can men do to change the trajectory of how men are viewed and perceived? Should men break away from the stereotypes? The media man is here. <laughs> Thank you. The, the, the answer lies with the media. The main educator. It is the media. That is the, the educator of the masses. It's about the narrative. It's about the portrayal in, in the movies. It's about the way that we are prom promoted for violent behavior. This is a violent society. Boxing basketball, football, uh, you name it, now UFC. Uh, it's all about that. How many times do you see them talking about science and philosophy and psychology? And uh, they don't do that anymore because that does not sell. So you promote this on the one end, this desire, sex, part for the females, and for the men it's all violence. And sex sells, violence sells. You must be talking about basketball in the 80s, because it's not basketball now. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think he threw that at Dex. Let Let's let yeah. that Dex okay. come back, and then we'll come back over here. Well, let me just say this. Um, if anyone knows my platforms and knows my, um, my company, you'll know that basically what I do is educate and inform, and we like to editorialize the success and the achievement of the black community. 
So we don't de deal with crime. We don't deal with punishment. We don't deal with, you know, you're not going to see a story about somebody got shot, somebody got killed, somebody raped, violence, none of that. We're about, we're about educating and informing and making sure that if there's a young man or a young lady out there, they, that they can read in my publication, they can watch in my television show, and they can see in, <clears throat> in my digital platforms as well. And this is not an advertisement for me. All I'm just saying is that, you know what, I, I understand what you're saying, but somebody has to make a conscious effort to change the narrative, and I have. I think for so long... Um, I would agree with you for a very long time about it's the media. Things, the media landscape has changed where at one point there were a few people who controlled the media and they put out the message. But now the messages are user generated. And so we have social media where users actually create the content for everybody else to see. It's perpetuated by these algorithms these algorithms respond to what people want to see. And the more you watch it, the more it's fed to you. So then you have to ask the question, is it the media's fault or is it the audience's fault? Because the audience continues to want more. They want more ignorance. They want more blood. They want more violence. Um, they want more, you know, see people fighting in the airport, etc. Those are, the, those are the things that you see constantly on social media. And while most of us are of an age where we respected the 730 News, maybe Peter Jennings, et cetera, et cetera, and that was our source of where we got information, when we look at young people today, they probably don't watch the 730 News to inform them of what's entertaining or what's out there, et cetera. So when we have this discussion, uh, again, as, as I started speaking on before, we need to translate that to today's era. We need to understand where are these young men and women right now and know that they're creating the content for the people, uh, for their era, for their age. <laughs> I'll throw this real quick because I like to throw this out when I speak. A lot of black men don't realize that 65% of crime in this country are committed by white people. When I talk to black people, they believe that we commit the majority of the crime. And I'll just leave it at that. You're, you're, you're right, 100%. Um, and I'll tell you this, black or black crime is a myth, right? Um, um, it, it, crimes are crimes of proximity, right? If you live in pro close proximity to someone, if you do commit a crime, it's more than likely going to be someone that lives in close proximity of you. My argument, though, to that is I agree with that 100%. My argument is there's not that many of us here in this country, right? Yeah, that's, that's um, <laughs> And we have a country that glorifies guns and violence. So if we continue to subscribe to that and allow that to happen, we don't have to worry about a government wiping us out. We'll wipe ourselves out, Right. So we have to use that knowledge, right? I'm the first to tell, I'm the prosecutor. I'm the chief prosecutor. I tell you, black-on-black black crime is a myth. However, numbers don't add up, right? So I'll move on. The Academy has spoken. Just read. Next question. Next question. Oh, no, oh, sorry, Doc. Okay, we're getting there right now. Okay, uh, let me see. When you are overwhelmed by stress... 
Who do you turn to for guidance? When you're overwhelmed by stress, who do you turn to for guidance? Well, that's one of the things I, turn, I already touched on, that us black men, we need to have a circle of friends, of people that are like-minded and some people who may be even ahead of us to give us, give us advice because you cannot and will not be able to navigate this life by yourself. And that is one of the biggest mistakes that we do make. We try to take it on on our own. And nine times out of ten, when I see a man with the success of somebody like Dexter Bridgman, I understand what? He has people like you and his other friends around. These people pull him up. These people keep him straight. These people keep him on the square. I think, and just a caveat off you, uh, Gene, is I think a problem within our community is we don't know how to pick the right people. I think we just don't know how to pick or assign the, 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 the correct term as friend. We just called everybody our friend. No. No, well, well, well no, 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 brother, brother, when you get older. No, I understand what you're saying. When you get older, you, 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 get to, you, you get to the understanding of how meaningful or impactful that word is and how impactful your circle is around you. But when you're learning, when you're, young, when you're a young guy coming up or a young man coming up, these are lessons that you got to, I mean, we've all had to go through the, I mean, we had disappointment and heartbreaks and, and friendships. We've lost good men along the way in our circles. But this is lessons that we've had to learn. That, and, I, and I'm sorry, to t- I'm taking too long, too long, but I think the disconnect is we're talking from our, from our perspective but what we need to be doing is translating our, our lessons to the next generation. Oh, absolutely. And actually, with that being said, uh, Dexter and myself and some others, um, I just had a Women's Business Council conference uh, last Saturday. Not this past Saturday, Saturday before last, 400 women um, talking about wis- women, wisdom, and wealth. And how can we bring 400, 500 men to talk about the issues that we are facing? And actually, my good friend there, uh, Dion, we actually, and she uh, represents AARP, and we actually have been talking about that for actually too long. Yeah. And so we're going to work on putting this together. So I will make sure that we come back together. Did anyone else want to? Yeah, yeah. Um, man, I agree with everything you guys said. So maybe I'm saying more of the same. Um, I'll throw a twist out there. You know, for a long time, people would say, ah, man, you can't just pray about it. You know, I will say that I do turn to my spirituality, right? So whether it's praising, worshiping, um, things like that in my free time to help me get through those tough times. Because no lie, I used to start my day off with Future, Lil Wayne, Drake, all these guys, (laughs) right? Going to do a therapy session. And I tell you no lie, man, now I'm starting my days off with Maverick City, you know, um, all these guys, right? And it gets you just in the mindset to... I don't know, like, like serve and be free and feel like there's something bigger than you that's looking out after you. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I pray and then I go through the work. So speaking to my friends, uh, I have a good friend right here on the front row up here. Like, it's, it's a combination of things. It's not just one thing, but it's a combination of things. So, Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in to another episode of the Brain Love Podcast. This has been a live event, and for some of you listening on the Audible podcast, it is it's live for some of you because now Spotify allows you to have a live um, or a video version of your podcast. So listen, we have a few events coming up. October 8th is a woman's intimate healing. 
November 6th is part three to the men's mental health panel. And December 4th, Michael Blackson is my special guest, y'all. So join us on the couch for one of these shows. Remember, brain love and follow the DRT Brain Love Foundation on Eventbrite, as well as on social media. Our website is brainlovefoundation.com. Love you. Brain love.